Welcome to Supply Circles, stories from the innovators, disruptors, and improvers in supply chain management today, brought to you by AI Group. Hello, I'm James Scotland, and this is Supply Circles, the podcast that helps business managers everywhere to better understand modern day supply chains. It's the podcast where we seek out the latest ideas, concepts, tactics, and strategies for addressing the current three big challenges of business management, digitalization, decarbonization, and ongoing disruptions. In this podcast, I seek to uncover on your behalf the current thinking and the successes of leading supply chain doers and thinkers and leaders. In today's episode, I want to investigate a critical part of the new supply chain environment, the second D, the decarbonization of modern day supply chains. My guest is the impressive Margaret Stewart, the Director of Corporate Affairs and Sustainability at Nestle Oceana. Margaret is well known for her lifelong passion for tackling wicked, complex, fascinating problems. So she is perfect for her role in resolving the challenge of decarbonizing the complex supply chain of Nestle. And I'm sure she'll be the first one to tell us she is part of a team, a global team within a major global company that is openly committed to achieving both net zero carbon emissions and overall reduced carbon emissions. Two different things. We might talk about that. Let me tell you a story. In 1867, Henri Nestlé started a company in Switzerland to produce a milk-based baby food, which became known to us as condensed milk, and it became a worldwide phenomenon. And I mean worldwide. Nestlé set up in Australia just 40 years later, in 1908, just eight years into the Federation of Australia. And it's been a significant food and beverage company here ever since. Globally, the company now employs 339,000 employees. There's 442 factories in 86 countries, worldwide distribution networks that provide sales of $130 billion uh, in, in 2014 and no doubt much more since then. Of course, for anyone who doesn't know, Nestle produces over 2,000 brands from global iconic brands to local favourites. Certainly, they play a significant part in my decadent lifestyle with brands such as Milo, Nescafe, Maggie, Carnation, Allen's, Lollies, Hello, Buttermenthos, oh yeah, Purina Pet Foods, Low Snack, Uncle Tubby's Oats, and Quickies. Uh, and of course, insert the heart emoji here, Kit Kat and Smarties. Oh, drool. But now think of the supply chain involved in this global and Australasian major operation, from farming to manufacturing to packaging to warehouse to distribution to point of sale. With transport requirements between each stage, it's a big footprint. And now imagine this, the global CEO made a commitment to decarbonise. He committed the company to absolute emission reduction by 20% by 2025, just three years away and by 50% by 2030, just seven years away. And these targets must be achieved despite Nestle's supply chain being largely outside of the company and despite the company continuing to grow and expand. Expansion was no reason not to achieve reduction. And the reduction had to be achieved using science-based target initiative standards. No greenwashing, hard scientific solutions only. And here's the thing, the company is on track to achieve it, both globally and in Australia. How is this possible? Well, let's find out. Hello, Margaret. Hi, how are you? I'm good. It's good to talk to you. You sound like you've got a, you know, a 
big challenge that you are facing head on and doing well with. How did you feel when you first heard of Nestle's targets? Were you in the business then? I was, and I was actually really excited by them because I really think that climate change is definitely the challenge of our time. And I wanted to be working for a company that was real about doing something about it. And so I was excited that we would have the opportunity to do something. But at the same time, a little bit formidable, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. How do, you, how do you go about sort of getting your head around it? Did you sort of think, well, we need to do this in small chunks or is this, I, I don't know, do you know the Pareto principle? You, you take the biggest part first and work through the work down to the 20% or did you sort of say, let's just get some wins in? Sometimes it feels like they're all big bits um, yeah. and there are parts that we can control more easily and there are parts that are harder for us to control. So um, the vast majority of the emissions associated with the Nestle business are actually outside Nestle's direct control. Um, and so starting with what we can directly control and directly influence makes the most sense to start with. How did you get the staff on board? Was that an easy, an easy sell? I think what really helps is when you've got um, um, executive leadership across the company who are absolutely passionate about doing this, who can see the need for it, and when staff themselves actually want to do things as well. So, you know, we've seen people come around the business, come up with initiatives and ideas and so on that nobody had asked them to do. They just saw that there was an opportunity and decided to grab it. So, it's... um, it's, it's kind of like something that needs to fit into everybody's job, but getting people on board with it has not been that difficult. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, because uh, I was talking to some people in the LNG industry in Canada, and they were telling me that they were having trouble getting staff, despite the fact they pay, they pay overs, you know, they pay big money for engineers. This is, you're an engineer, this is what you do, and we'll pay big money to have you. They were saying, yeah, but my problem is, is that my kids don't like me working in LNG uh, and it's a social issue. Uh, and it, it, it's much more than just uh, – this whole idea about decarbonisation is now much more than just a, a requirement. Is it? it's, it's now part of our life. Well, yes, because we all want like, – climate change is going to destroy us. Otherwise, we really need to be real about doing this in our businesses as much as we need to be real about it in our personal lives as well. And so people um, – you know, there's a great swing towards people wanting to be involved in roles that let them do this kind of work. Yeah, and it's hard to get people in roles that don't do that. Yeah, exactly right. How did you end up at Nestle? Um, so I'd had a career in um, corporate affairs in all sorts of different areas, particularly um, around agriculture and health in particular. I've always enjoyed, enjoyed roles where there's been really wicked problems to address. I've always enjoyed roles where there's been um, sustainability bent to it and a strong science bent as well. And so I found myself at Nestle. But you're not a scientist. I'm not a scientist, no. <laughs> Scientists are different, you know, Margaret. <laughs> They're terrific um, and we couldn't do it without them. That's for absolutely, sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hello to to <laughs> hello to my niece. I better not say her name. Um, <laughs> uh, part of the challenge is this idea that the uh, to decarbonize, uh, you had to go outside of your direct control. And that brings us to the, the concept of agriculture. It's a key part of the supply chain. And many skeptics point to agriculture as the problem and as an inhibitor, you know, until we solve 
agriculture, we can't solve climate change. But Nerfrain's got some pretty unique approaches to dealing with the farmers. I don't buy into the idea that until we can't we can't solve X until we solve Y. I think um, there are lots there are things that um, solutions don't necessarily exist for yet, but that's no reason not to do what you can do. Um, and reaching into agriculture is obviously really critical for us. About two thirds of our emissions come from ingredients, um, and so. It's something that we need to move on pretty quickly. And I've got to say about half of those come from dairy and and livestock-based ingredients, but particularly dairy. And so um, Nestle's had a long, long history of working alongside farmers um, right around the world, looking at their productivity, um, looking at how we help them farm better, farm more efficiently, and also farm more sustainably as well. So this now forms part of those farmer relationships. Um, if I look at dairy in particular, we've got about 200 projects around the world, including a couple in New Zealand, looking at how we can address emissions in dairy in dairy farming with the idea that how can we reach towards net zero in dairy farming. Um, it's not... We, we shouldn't wait till we have all the answers. We should we should test what we know now, continue to look for answers and look for things that can be rolled out to farms to make a difference. Um, in particular, we've been looking at regenerative agriculture. So how do we support um, better soils? Because we know it all starts with soil. How do we support biodiversity on farms? How do we help farmers inset on their own farms? Um, and above all, how do we do this in a way that is fair to farmers and enables them to preserve productivity and preserve their farms into the long term? It's a really interesting question, isn't it? Because one of the things that we seem to, to be really coming to realise is that decarbonising is a business opportunity. We get an opportunity to improve our businesses, not just take carbon out of it, not just take uh, um, uh, take the traditional way that we do it, but actually improve our business. And, and regenerative farming is a, is a classic example of that. It's really interesting talking to farmers who've been on the regenerative agriculture path for a while. Um, what they will tell you is that um, they – tended to be more resilient during drought than other farmers um, because of the amount of water that was stored in their soil. But they don't tend to do quite as well in the really good times, but overall um, it works out. But the other interesting thing in speaking to them is that sometimes um, the crisis point came for the individual farmer when they realised that um, their own in their own time of stewarding that particular farm, their topsoil had shrunk and that their practices had actually reduced the amount of topsoil that they had. And so they were really keen to rebuild topsoil because they see that it's been critical for the future of their own farm and for their own legacy on that farm. And so yeah. we obviously want to support them on that road as well. Yeah, so sustainability kicks in in a number of different meanings of the term, doesn't it? It's, you know, you start seeing a, a really holistic approach to sustainability. It absolutely does. Like you think about everything from waste to carbon um, to water use uh, to for us for packaging. Um, it's there's no um, there's no silver bullet around sustainability. There's a whole lot of things that you have to look at right through your entire business um, to try and understand what you need to do and make that real difference. Oh, you, you mentioned the waste, and it just made me think of uh, not just farm waste, but but also. Uh, the amount of waste uh, that is created in our normal 
business operations. One of the big issues in uh, food and beverage is packaging. And I know that you've spent a lot of time in, in trying to have a, have a think about this. Frame the question for me. Um, packaging is a, is a waste problem or is packaging a different problem? How do you see it? Um, packaging is a complex problem. Um, we <laughs> a wicked really, problem. A wicked one. A wicked problem. It is that. Um, I mean, packaging is really critical because, I mean, the first thing we have to say is that packaging is critical for a couple of reasons. Um, number one, food has to be safe. It's got to be good quality. So it keeps the food clean and good quality. And also um, it's important for information like nutritional information and um, allergen information and those kind of things. So we do need packaging. Um, the question then comes in of what's the right packaging to use and why. Unfortunately, there's actually no silver bullet for packaging at all. There's no, we'd all love there to be one perfect form of packaging, but there just isn't. And so we need to look at what's the best type of packaging for individual product, products. I think where the challenge comes in is historically um, our industry has just bought packaging and hasn't thought about how packaging might fall into a system. So that, that gets the question of how do we design our packaging that can be recyclable? How do we communicate on pack effectively to consumers so that they know what to actually do with that pack when they're finished with the pack? Um, how do we make sure that what we make is as easy as possible to be recycled through the system. So how do we understand what the, what the systems and standards are right through the recycling value chain? Um, that's, all, that's changed a lot in the last few years. Um, one of the areas that we at Nestle have been focusing on is soft plastics. And obviously, at the time that I'm speaking, um, we've all been really devastated by the news that the Recycle um, soft plastic scheme has um, halted collection. Uh, but where we've been looking for a couple of years is what can we do differently with soft plastics? Um, are there better ways to process them and are there better ways to collect them? We think the answer to that is yes. Um, we've trialled curbside collection of soft plastic. Uh, we've worked right through the value chain to go, is there a better use? And the better use is yes. It lies in new advanced recycling technologies that allow you to take that soft plastic waste and turn it back to oil. The trick is getting enough collection and that's where soft plastics come into play. Um, so that's an area that we've been working to look at how to, how can we, uh, it started with us, then it's gone to a broader industry question through the AFGC of how can we develop a recycling scheme for these soft plastics that allow them to be collected at scale and processed at scale so that we're not thinking about waste anymore, but we're thinking about resource. So right now, um, there are trials running in half a dozen different LGAs. There's about 10,500 households actually trialing that collection and um, so that we can begin to develop a scheme that rolls out nationally. Um, so there's a couple of questions. Um, just perhaps briefly explain what what was red and and, and why did it fall over? Um, so red cycle red cycle was um, a scheme that collected or is a scheme currently on hold that has collected soft plastics through bins in um, supermarkets and has used them has taken those plastics and manually recycled them. The challenge, you, you actually can recycle soft plastics. Um, we do it with things like stretch wrap and shrink wrap and other business plastics. And they're usually a pretty good clean source for recycling. The challenge with um, 
with supermarket collection of post-consumer waste is that it's a much more mixed collection of plastics and they're harder to recycle. The challenge that RedCycle ran into, as I understand it, is their end markets dried up. And so there was no longer somewhere to for those plastics to go to using the mechanical recycling that they were using. Uh-huh. Um, so that's why we're looking beyond mechanical recycling to see what's possible through um, advanced recycling to turn it back to oil. Let me ask you a non-scientific, uh, as, as a Dorothy Dixie question, why use plastic when I was growing why up? Why use plastic? The, when I was growing up, we gave the green graces, they'd uh, say beautiful tomatoes and put them in a, ba- a paper bag or something, or, or we'd put them in our shopping trolley. I know it's a dumb question. That's groceries. But, you know, we, 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 why use plastics? Why don't you just use something else? Because plastics, there are some things they do really, really well. They're very light. That has an impact on um, how you move your products around, how you pack them. It's actually an impact on carbon. They're fairly light in emissions um, and they're very flexible in terms of what they allow us to do. And, of course, above all, they keep food safe and clean and free from contamination. They do a better job of that. Yeah, Yeah, they do a, a better job of that than a lot of other materials. Um, we can swap to other materials in some instances, but we, we might lose out along the way in terms of weight or flexibility or emissions or so on. Much as I wish I could say there is a super-duper fabulous packaging type out there that will solve all problems, there just isn't one. Yeah, I, I asked the question. I knew the answer. But I, I asked the question because it, it really highlights the complexity of your role where there's not – there's no easy solutions to anything, is there? You... Absolutely not. One of my um, pet sayings this year is if anybody says they should just, then they probably didn't understand the issue because yeah. it, there is so much complexity behind complexity. And if it was simple as they should just, you can bet they would have already done it. Exactly, of, of, of course. One of, the, um, one of the things that they talk about in the, in the circular supply chain and any with no waste is changing consumer behaviour, uh, you know, the way we buy things that way, it, that's not really my, uh, a Nestle's sort of issue, is it? Well, it is because we want to take responsibility for our packaging beyond when it leaves our hands. So the most obvious example of this is Nespresso pods. We've had a recycling scheme in place for um, oh, yeah. aluminium <laughs> coffee pods for many years now, and it's um, – collecting a surprising amount of pods which we're able to recycle the aluminium and send the coffee grounds off to compost. So we we actually do think it's our responsibility. The other thing is that um, putting the Australasian recycling label on pack, which is that little label you'll see with a circle around it, says ARL underneath, tells you where the packaging can go. Um, We were very keen to get involved with the Australasian recycling label really early on because we think it's important that consumers know which bin they put it in. Um, And if that bin is a landfill bin, let's be honest and upfront about that and not greenwash our way around it. But it's also encouraged us to make more of our packaging recyclable as well. And obviously, the work that we've done around trying to develop a better scheme for soft plastics comes out of our belief that we do have a responsibility to do something there as well. I was going to say it was not Margaret's problem, but I changed it to Nestle. But uh, it's all all of our problems now, and no doubt we have to understand it. Uh, you mentioned greenwashing. Does Nestle get involved in in carbon trading or, or you know, carbon sinking or anything like that? 
Um, there's a place. So our real focus is on how do we reduce emissions. That's our first and foremost thought is how do we reduce emissions right through our business, whether that's emissions on farms, whether it's in our manufacturing, so our energy use and so on, whether it's in packaging, logistics, or right through to you know travel and those kind of things. Our focus is on how do we actually reduce emissions. There'll be a place where there'll be emissions that we can't reduce. Mm-hmm. When that comes in, there'll be a place for, that's where the place for offsets come in. I think um, offsets have a role. Um, Offsets actually provide an opportunity for um, projects that can actually really add some value to get funding for those projects. Um, where offsets are problematic is where they're used to cover up for not reducing emissions. And that's why the first focus has to be, how do you reduce emissions? Yeah, I, I, I love that answer because um, if you're going immediately to to that solution, you're sort of not, not really addressing the issue, are you? You're just... You're just finding an easy answer. And that's where the concern comes from because people, I think, are legitimately worried that pe- that businesses are buying offsets um, to cover what they haven't done. And that's a legitimate concern, but and th- but that's why the focus has to be on emissions reduction. Offsets well, have their place, but we have to reduce. One of the things that uh, inspired me to ask you to come on uh, on the show is because of uh, of Nestle's commitment to reducing emissions. So the, you've got net zero that says there's some some parts of our supply chain that are positive and we can't abate them. And there's others that we can get to below zero. So all, all together we'll get to net zero. We'll get to a zero figure or plus or minuses. But that's different from actually reducing emissions, reducing the amount of carbon that you used. Has that been a real focus within in, in this um, this like? Because it looks like it. It sounds like it. So it's really embedded in what we do. We uh, Nestle came out with um, a net zero roadmap, which sets out what we need to do to reduce emissions across the business in all sorts of areas. Um, a lot of that is time bound. Um, so we have very specific projects that we're rolling out now, and there'll be more in the future. Um, it involves looking at everything from our recipes. Um, If we change ingredients in our recipes or we change sourcing, will that reduce emissions? Um, If if we're able to support farmers to reduce emissions, that will reduce emissions. If we use renewable electricity in our operations, that will reduce emissions. It's about how do we look across everything we do to look at where we can take emissions out. I think it's a fabulous story. Uh, I will take a quick, a quick break and come back. Before we take a break, this is a dumb question. <laughs> I love dumb questions. When I was a kid, uh, it used to be called Nestles. And then one day someone said, it's not Nestles, it's Nestle. And it became Nestle from then on. And I, as a marketer, I just think, I don't know how they did that. They just changed the name overnight. Uh, first of it shows us that we are a multicultural country. But do you remember the change? What happened? Um, the change is so long before my time, and I don't really know. <laughs> my gut is it happened around about the 1980s. Oh, I'm um, dating myself. I don't. But I remember Nestles as well. I remember Nestles. Um, I actually went to the Nestles chocolate factory when I was a little kid. Uh, um, and um, and now it's Nestle, but I think it's actually a sign of um, something healthy in our culture that that that's happened pretty seamlessly. It really is because it just shows that we're multicultural, that we can understand that not all words are Anglo-Saxon. I think it's great. All right, let's take a break. We'll come back shortly. If you have supply chain or business improvement challenges, 
Contact AI Group's Business Improvement and Growth Hub. The Big Hub is a library of practical and relevant resources designed to assist member businesses to grow and improve. The Big Hub also includes an extensive network of experienced, pre-qualified business improvement consultants. For more details, contact big at aigroup.com.au. That's big at aigroup.com.au. I'm talking to Margaret from Nestle, and uh, we just finished talking about how Nestle's became Nestle. And um, I think it's a good idea that we don't try and change Kit Kat because that's my favourite thing. Don't don't mess with perfection, Margaret. Let's talk about renewable energy. Um, everyone's talking about it. We need to find a way to go from single source energy to renewable energy if we're going to be sustainable. How's Nestle looking at this? What's the solutions that they've come up with in in some of the ways? Well, as ever, there's no single answer to that one. Um, In Oceania, we've been on this road for a while. So um, we use renewable energy in a couple of our factories where they actually use waste um, as a source of energy. So, for example, our Nescafe factory in Gympie um, up on the Queensland Sunshine Coast, um, that factory is a one ingredient factory, just coffee beans. And um, once they've actually used those coffee beans to make Nescafe, the coffee beans themselves are actually waste. And so those that waste goes into biomass, a biomass boiler, and is used to power about 65% or more of the energy needs of that particular factory. Um, further down the coast towards Sydney, um, Smithtown on the New South Wales mid-north coast, that's where we make Milo. Um, it's where we've made Milo since it was first created um, back in 1934. I think I've got that right. And um, that factory uses waste from the local timber industry as a source of biomass. And that, that um, creates about 80% of that factory's energy use comes from that biomass. So that's stuff that we've been doing for quite a long time. And it deals effectively with waste as well as, of course, creating a renewable energy source. Um, in, back in 2021, we um, um, introduced renewable electricity. So we have a PPA in, in place um, backed by um, wind-powered electricity. What's the um, PPA? Up, oh, sorry, power purchase agreement in place <laughs> that covers all our electricity needs in Australia. Um, so all our electricity is now renewably sourced. Um, the next step, obviously, is to look at um, – to look at other energy that we use in our business, so gas energy and so on, to look at where we might head with that. Our immediate thing, though, is to have renewable electricity globally, powering all our sites globally by 2025. Um, That sounds easy on the surface of it, but um, the world is a difficult and complex place and um, just how how we get all of that in place remains to be seen, but we're working on that now. Yeah, energy is a real issue at the moment with you know Ukraine and Russia and, and all sorts of different stuff changing the pricing. Um, but I love this idea of saying that that there's a lot of energy in nature. We can we can we can use nature to create energy. We don't have to just be dependent on um, some oil that we're going to ship across the world. Well, to, oil to comes from France. nature too. <laughs> I know, but it would, it's in only some limited areas. It's not available yeah. yep, everywhere. Yep. That's how we how we don't destroy the world with carbon emissions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all of this is uh, based around 
uh, ESG, uh, Environment and Social Governance, and you know, yes, obviously this is part of your your day job. There's still a lot of people who who are confused by ESG. Um, I, I guess mainly, particularly the smaller businesses. How do you how do you refer to to ESG when when trying to bring your suppliers into what you have to do? Um, I think terms like ESG can have that kind of buzzword type effect where people forget to understand what it means. So you need to break it down for people so that they understand it. Um, I think um, for Nestle, um, the S of ESG very much comes into the question of how do we have a just transition? So yes, we need to transition to a low carbon economy, but how do we do that in a way that's fair and doesn't put burden unnecessarily on in places, on people and in places where it shouldn't be. But how do we do that in a way that's just for everybody? Um, often with smaller suppliers, it's with suppliers, it's more a way of how do we spell it out in terms of practices that might we might be looking for or practices that we don't want, um, that we don't want associated with ingredients that we buy. Um, so, for example, I'll use modern slavery as, an, as a very obvious example. We don't want to get products that come from slavery. Um, mm. And so um, you start to cut it down in those kind of ways. But you can't go to, like, you need to have some sensitivity around how you approach um, small businesses around these issues because they don't necessarily have the resource to get their head around every aspect of it. Rather, it's how do you break it down? Yeah, one of uh, one of our members asked me about modern day slavery. They said that they had received a contract from a major buyer, uh, and said, "What are you doing about modern day slavery?" And, and they said, "Well, I don't know what you're talking about." And they, they were surprised when I said that there's over there's nearly 50 million people in, in the world who are uh, who are classified as as modern day slaves. Uh, like that's a lot of people, um, and we need to make sure that we're, we're, we're aware of it. My, my comment to them was, you just need to do a risk assessment of where you're getting your stuff from in the world uh, and see if there's any opportunity for modern day slavery. Uh, just do a, a quick risk. Yeah, I think um, it would be foolish to say that any company can guarantee that their supply chains are um, slavery free, but it is important that we do what we can um, around due diligence in supply chains to find that out. So the terrific thing about the focus that there is on modern slavery in um, business now is that there are a lot more resources available to help businesses understand how to look at their supply chains or even just resources that tell them what types of commodities and what types of geographies and those kind of things might be at risk. But it's about trying to understand a little bit more about your supply chain and seeing what risks might be there. I can't help but think too that um, um, we need to think not just deep into supply chains, but also in operations as well. So um, it's important. I think there can be a risk of thinking that human rights abuses don't happen in Australia, but they actually do. And labour abuses do happen in Australia as well. So it's important to look at supply chains in Australia to make sure that um, workers are paid fairly, um, to understand where risks particularly sit here, as well as other places too. Yeah, really, really, really poor working conditions and massive underpayment and um, where the where the employee can't escape those conditions, you know, you've got to say, well, that's 
that's bordering on modern day slavery. Surely, if they're they're subservient some way and they can't do anything about it, it's awful. Yeah, but like yeah. you say, you can't you can't completely eliminate it if you're a small business and you're looking at your supply chain. So usually, the the causes of supply of um, slavery are really complicated, and it varies from area to area. Um, for for Nestle, when we've seen human rights abuses in our supply chains, we work we, we work with local experts to help us understand that and help yeah. us work out how to address it and what we need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's 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 complex, difficult work. But what's encouraging is you actually can make a real difference to the lives of people, and that's the part that's most important. Well, that means you've got a pretty good job. You're making a difference to the world and to people. Uh, do you feel good about the job? How's it going? Um. What I love about this is seeing the excitement within the business about what we can do and being able to see that we're making um, a measurable difference um, in important areas. Um, And just, I think, you know, possibly the things that I found most exciting for me are when somebody comes to me and says, hey, I know we weren't thinking about point of sale displays, but hey, I've got this great idea for how we can um, redesign our um, point of sale displays so that everything's recyclable, so that we lose use less material, so that we um, they last longer. I've, you know, I've had these ideas, and I know that's what that's not what you were looking for. But all of a sudden, you go yes, yes. Our people are thinking the right way; they get it, and they're really keen to be part of the solution. That's that for me is really exciting as well. When other people are on board, how is uh, Oceania doing compared to the rest of the world? Of the rest of you know, the Slay world. Um, it's a big, big business globally. Do you mean how we're doing in sustainability? Yeah, um, I guess so. different, yeah. I would say different places have different um, have different challenges. Um, obviously, for us, the challenges even within Oceania, it's different within different countries. So the challenges relating to recycling waste are different in Australia to how they are in New Zealand to how they are mm-hmm. in in Papua New Guinea and likewise the the access to solutions or the access to resources varies between different countries and sometimes it's really like you're ahead in one area and not so ahead in the other but you just keep pushing on the thing that is important is that we learn from within the business internally and um, measure using the right yardsticks um, for what we do in our own business. Yeah we don't have time to talk about it but I I've said for many years that decarbonisation and digital businesses are intertwined because you need to measure uh, and so you need to be digitalised in, in many areas. Uh, is, is, would you agree with that? Um, absolutely. So we're really, we rely quite heavily on the tools that we have to help us measure and report. Um, obviously, they're global tools and we're connected globally um, to make sure that we can also report globally as well because transparency about what we're doing and the results that we're having is also important. Um, um, Digitisation also helps us with tracing ingredients. Um, it helps us with um, mapping um, whether there's risks of deforestation and so on. There are so many things that that helps us with. And, um, yes, they're absolutely inextricably intertwined. I just am amazed at how complex your challenge is, your role is. You have so much that there's, there's no simple solutions, like you said. And maybe there are, that's, absolutely. 
there are absolutely no simple solutions. And <laughs> like, let's not pretend that I do all of this. Um, there are people no, no. right throughout every area of our business working on it because it's really, really important that you embed it at the coalface where people are actually doing the work and seeing the opportunities. Um, you know, we've got a whole lot of factories in Australia. I can't know the ins and outs of every factory, but there's people on the ground that do. No, what we need you to do is explain it, and you've done that brilliantly well. So thank you so much. I just realised that we haven't covered the main point of uh, of this, is which is to talk about Kit Kat and the Kit Kat packaging. Um, there's a good reason for me to keep eating Kit Kats. Is that right? There's always a good reason to keep eating <laughs> Kit Kats. Who doesn't need a break? But it's got good packaging. Is that right? Um. So. Yeah, Kit Kat's actually been at the forefront of quite a few changes of packaging. We've changed packaging right through our business in all sorts of areas. But there's a couple of things we've done with Kit Kat that have been particularly interesting, I think. Um, the most recent one is we're trialling Kit Kat in a paper-based packaging. We're trialling that in Western Australia, Northern Territory and South Australia, sold through Coles right now. Um, as well, last year, um, we introduced um, um, Australia's first ever soft plastic packaging with recycled content. We put that around a Kit Kat as well. Um, right now, that material is hard to get. And this is why we're keen to do that recycling work around mm. how do we collect and how do we process. Um, that stuff was hard to get, but we we're really proud that we were the first ones in Australia to do that. Um, going further back with Kit Kat, uh, we also created Australia's first prototype wrapper using recycled content as well, so that we could show the rest of the industry what's possible. So, um, we're doing a lot of testing and learning with KitKat and with the KitKat wrapper to find ways that we can um, wor work out what works with consumers, what works with in our factory, what works in supply chains, the whole piece for how do we make a difference. What a, what a marvellous story and, and thank you for sharing it with us. It, it, I think anyone listening will sort of say to themselves, you know, when we think about uh, sustainability or decarbonisation, it's the big issues that we think about, you know, decarbing our energy sources or, or you know, buying electric vehicles or something. But it's actually right down there in the detail, isn't it, that packaging, that the way we make things, our recipes, our farmers. It absolutely is in the detail. And sometimes you can make quite significant differences out of quite small things. Um, I think, um, you know, it's one of those, how do you eat an elephant? And the answer is one bite at a time. My favourite saying, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's a great place to finish. Uh, we'll finish on Kit Kats and elephants. Thank you. Thank you for your time, Margaret. It's been great chatting with you. Uh, and all the best in all those efforts. I hope that one day a solution will pop up that's easy and simple to solve. <laughs> Thanks, James. Well, that's it for another episode of Supply Circles. Thank you again for listening. Before you do go, if you have any trouble with your apprenticeships and traineeships, why not contact AI Group's Apprenticeship and Trainee Centre. With over 15,000 apprentices and trainee placements and thousands of engaged businesses, AI Group's ATC has a proven track record of success. They know that for many employers, choosing an apprenticeship can be a bit like taking a stab in the dark. It's tough to get it right. AI Group's Apprenticeship and Trainee Centre provides a rigorous selection process to ensure a good fit for your business. And the way they manage apprenticeships is designed to ensure you get a return. Think of it as a placement that delivers productivity. I love that saying. So if you're looking for a hassle-free apprenticeship and traineeship process, contact AI Group's Apprenticeship and Trainee Centre on 1300 761 944. 
That's 1300 761 944. And that's it for today. We'll be back in a fortnight with some more insights to the keys of building sustainable supply chains. Thanks for joining me. I'm James Scotland. Bye for now.